We're going to stay in James. We won't go to any other part of the Bible except James. So if you've got the Bible open there, you'll be doing well. Can I please just advertise these books? Um, myself and Kate and Anna, the children's ministers, we've worked really hard at these. If you open them up, you'll see that there's uh, the first, one of the first pages is to take sermon notes today, if you would like to. Um, and then after that, there's, there's quiet time notes for every day for the next eight uh, weeks, which I've written. Uh, there's family devotions for those who've got families. But please, please, please make use of these. If you was here at the 9.30, you'd have known that all the children from naught right up to 18 are being taught the same passage that we are having taught every 9.30 and 11.30. So all the age groups, the first time I think we've done it at All Souls, all the age groups will be looking at the same passage. So we're hoping and praying that in the next eight weeks, all we'll be talking about is the book of James as God's family. So please make use of these. If you haven't taken one, please take one on the way out. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Your word that speaks to us into every area of our lives. There's no part of our lives it doesn't touch because you're a God who loves us. And because you love us, you love to speak. You love to make yourself known. So please be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you will know that my great love for West Ham United is a team I've supported all of my life, I was born into a family, a Chelsea family, but I, was, I moved from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. <laughs> the first game I went to was in August 1980 at the Academy of Football Upton Park. And in those days where the terraces were jam-packed, many songs were sung, most of which would be totally inappropriate to be sung from the pulpit of all souls. But there was one that I can mention that was sung towards the away fans, usually when you were two or three, na- two or three nil up, was, who are you? Who are you? In our culture today, the same question is often asked. And, <laughs> thank you. We could easily get into the, the, the terrace and I could answer you, but I won't. In our culture today, the same question is often asked and answers are demanded. When I was a teenager, music was massive. And your identity was that you were either a punk, a mod, or a skinhead. And your identity was linked to the, was, was linked to the music you, that you listened to. Your identity was linked to the clothes you wore or the music you listened to. In the last few years, issues of identity have focused on race, on sexuality, on gender. And with the cost of living crisis, class is back on the agenda, as it should be, with the ever-increasing divide between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. Our identity, who we are, is a vital part of our lives. And James would 100% agree with that. Your identity controls your behaviour, for good or for bad. Your identity can bolster your confidence or drain it. Now, when we read the book of James, it's not hard to imagine him on a football terrace. It's not hard to imagine him shouting, who are you, who are you, in East London. And as we journey through the book in the next few months, we will see that James is very, very much 
an in-your-face preacher. He's very much like his older brother, not afraid to say it as it is. You see, James is from Galilee, not Jerusalem. He's from Acne, not Hampstead. You see, the challenge for the preacher, the challenge for me in preaching the book of James, the challenge for those who are going to follow me in this eight-week series in preaching the book of the James is this. Will I have the bottle to really say what James says? Or will I bottle it? And will I tie it up and tone it down? The challenge for you is will you, will I have the bottle to apply what James says and obey what he says? So identity, James, who are you? Well, James does not hesitate in telling us exactly who we are. Look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, 12 tribes is just his nickname for Christians scattered all over the world. Our identity is we are a servant of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that actually mean? In our culture, a kind of servant is someone who greets you at a restaurant and then serves you your food. But in James's culture, it's very, very different. It has a much more powerful meaning. To be a servant in James's culture, well, let me, let me identify what it means, is to completely and absolutely assign all personal rights over to the authority and will of another person. Your will, my will, altogether swallowed up in the will of another. A Christian's identity is that we belong to the Lord Jesus. He is your Lord. He is your Saviour. He is your God. Now, our London culture rejects that, rebels against that, and constantly demands that we follow its lead and not that of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Now, obviously, I work with young people all the time, and I'm conscious that to their ear and maybe to your ear, the modern ear, that all sounds a little bit radical. Belonging? Belonging to someone? Doesn't that kind of stifle your freedom, your self-expression? Well, it probably would if you belonged to an equal, someone like yourself, with limited power, limited knowledge, limited wisdom, limited ability to love and forgive. But as we'll see shortly, the God we belong to, if you're a Christian, has limitless power, wisdom and love. So being a servant and belonging to Jesus Christ, far from limiting you, actually frees you to be what you've created, what you were created to be. It sounds radical to the modern ear that you belong to the Lord Jesus. It sounds radical to the modern ear. And let me tell you, yes, it is radical. It is radical. We should never, ever, ever walk away from that. If you're a Christian, you should be radical. There's nobody more radical than the Lord Jesus. We live in a darkened world. When the Prince of Light comes into a dark world, you can bet he was radical. And if you're following him, if I'm following him, then your life will be radical. 
See, James wants our identity. He wants us to be mature Christians. He doesn't want us tossed around like a feather in the wind. He doesn't want us walking around as Christians with blurred vision. Blurred vision as to who we are. Blurred vision as to who God is. Look at verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. We're a servant of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Your worth, your behavior, your desires, your relationships, all come under his leadership, his authority, his transforming power. It's a radical message. It's a radical identity. And James is calling you, he's calling me to own it, to live it. And to most of all, to enjoy it. You belong, as James will say in chapter 2, verse 1, you belong to the glorious Lord Jesus. How could we not enjoy belonging to him? You're a servant who belongs to the Lord Jesus. Secondly, your life. From our identity, the in-your-face preacher moves to the world that we live in. James has absolutely no time for a Christianity that's sanitized from the real world. He doesn't want to know anything about that. He lived with the Son of God who came from the glory of heaven to live in a selfish broken world. He's got no time for a Christianity that's sanitized from the real world. No, he wants us getting our hands dirty with its challenges. He wants our faith and trust in God to grow, to mature in a world where there are real trials. See, at the end of the book, James mentions a few Old Testament heroes, heroes of his, Job and Elijah. And I think in chapter one, he may be thinking of them here as well. You see, James knows That life is full of trials, and many of which he's going to mention in his book. Poverty, grief and loss, economic and social injustice, the pain of suffering but having no voice. Every day, a boss, a system, a culture that's ripping you off, and you can't do anything about it. You haven't got the money to pay a big lawyer. You just have to sit and suffer. Every day facing the consequences upon your own life, the consequences of other people's sins, not your own, but other people's sins upon your life. Every day living with the pain of missing a loved one. One who was there, but now is gone. Trials. Of many kinds. These are the trials James means. Yet he says that you've got to face them with, look at verse 2, with joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
So what on earth, what on earth does James mean by that? Real life, trials and joy don't seem to go together. So what is James getting at? How do trials, joy and perseverance work together to shape a person's character to help them on the path of Christian maturity? How does that work? I was about 14 and one of my best mates was a guy called Ian. His his nickname was Skinny. We grew up through Sunday school, youth work, and we walked together to school to Southborough. Ian's parents, Peter and Mary Thomas, were people I looked up to and greatly admired. I came from a loving home, but not a Christian one. So therefore, being invited into a Christian home had a huge effect on me. Tragically, Ian's dad, Peter, died at the age of 42 in his sleep one Sunday morning. To say the least, this was a trial. A mother losing a dear husband and being left with three teenage children. The following 20 years, I had the privilege of watching firsthand, close up, how James won was lived out in Mary's life. How trials and perseverance work together to shape her character. You see, as I watched Mary, she was the opposite to James' description in verses 6 and 7. Just look down. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, when James uses the word doubt, what he means is conflict in loyalty. What he means is not being faithful to the one that you say you love. It's similar to the other important word that he uses in the passage, double-minded. Now, if you want to know what, what James means by double-minded, just flick on to chapter 4, verse 4, and you'll see what James means by being double-minded. Look at verse 4 in chapter 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship... He's speaking to Christians here. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You're God's servant. Therefore, you have only one master, and faithfulness to him is the number one target in your life. There's nothing bigger, nothing bigger, nothing bigger than being faithful to your Savior if you belong to Jesus Christ. So how did Mary reflect James 1? Trials, joy, and perseverance working to shape her character to be more like Jesus. Lastly, your God. You see, there are key truths in this passage about God's character that Jane focuses upon, all of which I saw firsthand in the life of Mary Thomas. You see, when difficult trials invade your life, what are we left? We're left with challenging questions. 
I love the song we just sung, every word, you know, take it to the Lord in prayer. But there's one line, I only saw it in the early service, where I thought, that is nonsense. That's nonsense. What's the, what was the verse? What was the line? Um, Do not be discouraged. I mean, come on. How can you live in a broken world and want to serve Christ and not be discouraged at times? Was the Lord Jesus not discouraged when he looked over Jerusalem and he knew it was going to be judged and he wept and wept and wept? Don't you think he was slightly discouraged with that when he'd given his life to these people? I think he was a little discouraged. You're allowed to be discouraged in life. If you're not discouraged, you don't care. James wants to look at our lives. You see, when difficult trials invade your life, we're left with challenging questions. And some questions are legitimate, but often very difficult to answer, if not impossible to answer in this life. Questions like, why me? Why am I suffering this trial? Many of the Psalms struggle with this question. If you're struggling with this question at the moment, I encourage you to read this excellent book recommended to me by Phil Keane, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Its aim is to look at the doctrine of lament, which I think is terribly overlooked, if not never looked by us as Christians. Lament. How many of our hymns are hymns of lament? You look unbelievably difficult to find them. But this book looks at the doctrine of lament, which is one of the most important key ways in answering the question, why me? But James isn't looking at the question of why me. His question is, how am I to react when I face and when I'm in a trial? How do I persevere under this trial? Now, the word persevere is really important to understand. The word persevere means this, to carry a heavy load for a long time. To persevere is to carry a heavy load for a long time. Now, James' first bit of advice is this. When you face a trial, seek the wisdom of God. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and wow, are we going to lack wisdom when we face a trial? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, wonderfully, biblical wisdom has nothing to do with being clever. Hallelujah for that. Or the ability to store lots of information so you can pass your exam. Instead, wisdom is learning to live in God's world, in God's way. Wisdom is learning to live in God's world, in God's way. How to carry a heavy load. How to carry a trial for a long time. For a long time. For a long time. Without getting bitter. Bitter with God. Bitter with life. Bitter with those around you.
When I think of Mary Thomas, I can honestly say I never detected any bitterness within her whatsoever concerning the loss of a dear husband. And that was not only the heavy load Mary had to carry for a long time. Throughout her life, as far as I could tell, none of her three dear children ever came to Christ. Children is she to pray for every day. Now, what stopped her becoming bitter? What stopped her? I remember saying to me, you have to hold your kids with an open hand. They belong to the Lord. What stopped her becoming bitter? You see, Mary's life was marked by carrying the heavy load to her God. She was a woman who constantly asked God for wisdom and then read his word with ears hungering for answers. She learned to seek God for wisdom and then to listen to his voice, which is a repeated theme through the whole book of James. Next week, we're going to be thinking about listening all the time, looking in the mirror and then forgetting what you see. But look at chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen. Whatever trial you're facing... Let me ask you gently, are you seeking the wisdom of God? Are you learning from him how to carry the heavy load for a long time? James wants us first to listen and then to look at our God, to look and gaze at his wonderful character. You see, when you come to God struggling Wondering if you can carry the load anymore, feeling more crushed by the trial than carrying it for a long time. When we listen and when we look, what do we see? Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given you. We come to a God who's generous and kind. There are no limits to how many times we can see him in a day. It's never, oh, not you again? It's never that with our God. He's never frustrated with our questions, failings and weaknesses. But instead, he's a loving father who is generous with his wisdom. Never finding fault. Let me ask you gently as I can, as gently as I can. Are you asking God for wisdom? Are you listening to his voice? Or are you judging God by your present experience instead of his gracious and generous character? Have you fallen into the trap of judging God by the trial you're experiencing more than his good character? It's tempting, isn't it, to think of a trial as a kind of divine test that God has set you, a kind of spiritual GCSE or A-level, where God is marking you on every move 
to see whether or not you've got not an A, it's got to be an A star, because we're the kind of Christians that are kind of Oxbridge blood, aren't we? Which is, I think, what James is getting at in verses 13 to 15. Just look with me at that, please. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, for Mary... There was no joy at all in the death of her husband or the spiritual struggles of her children. The joy was not the trial, but instead what the trial produced. The trial brought her closer to her saviour, a more intimate relationship with him. I can remember a few years ago, I was going through a tough time myself, so I went to visit an older Christian to seek his wisdom. He shared with me, he said, Trevor, a good friend of mine has just died of cancer. And as I walked with him, as we together faced the valley of the shadow of death, it brought us closer together. Our relationship deepened to the degree we'd never known before. The trial strengthened our relationship which is the point that James is making here. As you seek God's wisdom, he shows you his gracious character. As you gaze at his character, the temptation to bitterness is replaced with a relationship that's deeper and gets sweeter instead of bitter. Lastly, James shows us two more truths about God's character that bring joy, that shape our personalities to help us persevere. You see, working with young people, although I think older people are no different, they often say young people are on their phones all the time, but you watch older people exactly the same. But you know, with young people and with us all, in this world, what we see, feel and touch understandably becomes what feels like the only reality. Which is why we so quickly end up living for this world instead of our eternal God. What we can see, feel and touch seems, seems like the only reality and we forget God. Or God kind of becomes an important accessory to our busy lives. It's very easy for that to happen to a church like this. We've got lots of things sorted. And in one sense, kind of following, following God helps your kind of morality and helps you be more stable, especially your kids. If your kids are kind of Christian, then they're more moral and they don't get into lots of bad things that you don't want them to get into. So God's important, but in reality, he's kind of one important bit of lots of other important bits. He's an accessory. But when that happens, James would say you're in a desperate and dangerous situation, God just being an accessory. In fact, he describes it pretty well in that verse we looked at in chapter 4, verse 4. Friendship with the world is enmity towards God. It's not being humble. It's being arrogant to think that God, God, can be just an important part of our lives. 
And it's pretty strong stuff from James, but I did warn you, he is an in-your-face preacher. To think of God as a mere accessory, a good thing to help you in your life, is to think like the world, to be a friend of the world. Instead, James wants our thinking to be controlled. James wants our thinking to be dominated in every single part of our lives by his word. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. You see, trials can often be God's way of humbling me, humbling you. I can honestly say the trials that God has brought into my life has humbled me. And it's weaned me off the world and what the world offers. Trials can be God's way of reminding us, reminding us that we are a mere flower, not a huge oak tree. You see, James, like his brother, will have a lot to say about wealth. James will have a lot to say about wealth, and it's devastating, the devastating damage wealth does to our spiritual lives. And in here in chapter 1, James wants to just give us a little taster about wealth. Just a little taster. Look down at verses 9 to 11, and he gives you a taster, the warning of wealth, the lie of wealth. Look at verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What is the humiliation of the rich? Well, their beauty, their wealth, them themselves is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Their wealth, our wealth, my wealth, has fooled me into thinking that I am a giant oak, when in reality, all I am, all you are, according to God, is a withering plant. The lie of wealth is I have more, therefore I'm worth more. I'm an oak. But God says, you're a flower, and you'll soon wither. The lie of wealth is, I have more, and I know more people. The wealth has brought me into realms of people who count, influential people, the people who matter. And God says, you're just a flower, and soon you will wither. And once withered, the influential people will soon forget you. And one day, they will wither also. Don't let the, don't let the lie of wealth con you into thinking you're an oak tree when you're just a flower. You're a flower. You are not an oak tree. You're a flower. I remember when I was 18, 
I've just come back from Operation Mobilization for a month in Europe, which was a mission organization mainly for young people. Dear George Ver, who died a few weeks ago, he would kind of, you were under his influence and spell as you went to win, win the world for Christ. I went for a month and it changed my life. I wouldn't be in Christian ministry if it hadn't been for OM and that month of mission. And I came back, and where do you think one of the first places I went to? I went to Mary to tell her of all my spiritual adventures. After listening to me for about an hour going on and on and on and on, Mary shared with me that I was on a spiritual high, a mountaintop. And Trevor, you'll soon have to come down. And then she gently and naturally shared with me how close to Jesus she was when her dear husband died. I remember her saying to me, when Peter died, she said, I was so close to the Lord. I was on a spiritual mountaintop, but I knew at some time I would have to come down. You see, Mary was a James chapter 1, 9 believer. She was a believer in humble circumstances. She never saw herself as anything else but a flower that would one day fade. Which is why her story is so inspiring. Because what made her life so powerful and so encouraging was she was just so normal. No A stars in her life. What she was good at What she did have an A-star at was listening to her saviour and gazing at her God. She persevered. She carried a heavy load because she looked forward to the prize. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord had promised to those who love him. I'm sure at times she maybe envied her husband because he got the crown earlier than she did. She persevered. She carried a heavy load because she'd learned to judge God's character not by the nature of the trial, or by the pain of the circumstances, but instead by the unchanging nature of her God. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Mary was mature and complete, not because she was great, but because she disciplined herself to listen and obey. Mary was mature and complete, not because she was great, but because she learned over many years to gaze at the character of her God. And I want to be like that. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're a God who can make dust into beautiful things. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.